Why'd you come here anyhow? <laughs> we finished up Revelation already, didn't we? Yeah, so uh, we're going to do a Q&A tonight. Uh, I meant it when I said it on Sunday. It's really not Stump the Pastor. Um, but uh, if you have questions uh, about Revelation specifically, do I still have a job? Well, at least it's not pink. Okay. <laughs> Who wrote this? Someone here? Well, people can raise their hands. <laughs> we know each other well enough that we can raise our hands here. Um, okay. So, all right, well, I'll put this in a special place. Um, anyhow, so uh, we're going to do a Q&A on the book of Revelation uh, based upon our study here. We... Uh, we began this study back in the uh, middle of January. We've gone through uh, 24 nights of the study, and uh, I'm always excited when we end. Um, it's, I just love the book of Revelation, but uh, I always wonder, you know, it's going to be five, six, seven years before we teach through it again, and uh, what is going to happen during that time? It's certainly my hope that we'll be in the mezzanine looking down. So... Um, <laughs> I, uh, I asked uh, the, the greeters to uh, give you a sheet of paper, which is not specific to uh, the book of Revelation. But um, I just so kind of understand how my head works, which is a scary concept, I realize. But um, uh, years ago, when Chuck Missler was alive, he used to do a thing called strategic trends. And as the years went by, he would always add another piece. And I think Chuck had six or seven um, strategic trends that K-House, you know, his ministry, were always following. And that became, for me, um, a, an, for, for me, an interesting way of seeing the world, seeing what was happening in the world, seeing what was happening prophetically. Um, and so over time, I keep adding to that list myself. So uh, over the weekend, Friday and Saturday, I did a prophecy comp conference at a church up in the mountains. And uh, so I, I put some of this together for that. And I thought, you know what, I'd give that to you. So it may help you, at least for your own study. But if that helps you in terms of looking at what we're doing tonight and it rings a dinger for you and you have a question, then that'd be great. Um, and if not, okay, you can wrap fish or do whatever you want with it, you know. But um, so I figure that uh, you'll either have questions or you won't. And uh, if you don't, then, you know, I'll come up with something fun to talk about. But um, so, uh, okay, so the, be, excuse me? Dear John. The question is, who wrote Revelation? The Apostle John or Dionysius, uh, the Bishop of Alexandria? Uh, John the Elder, difference between language style and thought, I guess, M. Luther, Martin Luther, I guess, I, I don't know who wrote this. If they just asked me, they could explain this. Uh, excuse me? Yeah. So, okay, so Dionysius, who was one of the early church fathers, 
um, had an opinion that John may be, uh, that, that John the Elder, not John the Apostle, uh, may be the author. Uh, the authorship of Revelation is fairly well undisputed. It's kind of interesting. Of the New Testament, the only book that's in any way disputed, really, in terms of authorship by, um, I'd say, even general, even, even general commentators, especially conservative commentators, the only one in which there's any real question or debate is the book of Hebrews. So, uh, excuse me? Okay, um, so we have, the, we have the Gospel of John, the three epistles, you know, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So um, authorship is, is easily attributed to the Apostle John. So um, other questions? Yes, sir. This is Jamie. Jamie, what was your question? Oh, let me, let me actually, let me give some ground rules first. Not because Jamie said it, it's just that I, I hadn't gotten it to it, so I want to make sure I say it. Ground rules. Um, the purpose of the evening is information. The purpose of the evening is to ask questions, get answers, and maybe discuss a few things. The purpose of the evening is not preaching, nor debate, per se. So I don't expect either one from Jamie, but I'm just saying that, you know, just so we know that. That way we can keep it moving during the night, okay? Jamie. You have a dilemma. That, that is in Daniel. In Daniel. He was told to, to, to seal up. Yes. And not, in my mind, I'm thinking Revelation is Daniel's seal up. In your mind, Revelation is what? Daniel's seal up. Is Daniel's seal up? Okay, thanks. All right, so, so, um, that's the answer to the question. Do you think that could be? Do I think what could be? I can't, because I really can't hear what you're saying, so. Do you think it could be Daniel's seal in Revelation? No, Daniel's book is Daniel's book. Yeah, I know. And Daniel's book is sealed, is the sealed up book. So everything that Daniel wrote was sealed up at that time. He says in chapter 11, he's told, seal up the book until the time of the end. Now, hold on. So, so now, when we get to the, the last book of the Bible, it's, this book is an open book, as opposed to Daniel, which is a sealed book. In fact, we're told that the, John is told at the end of Revelation, do not seal up the contents of the book. And it is. So the, the answer to the question is yes, the, the book of Revelation is the opening of, of what Daniel has sealed. The book of Revelation is the opening of it. Yeah, good, thank you. Other questions? All right, we'll, we'll close in prayer. <laughs> Michelle. It might be stupid, but it probably isn't. No, it might be. You know how you say you've also said that God works in many dimensions? Okay. Okay, a, a lot of what's in Revelation, I'm just wondering if you've ever thought this. It seems like it's got like an extra dimensional flavor. So do you think that maybe that a lot of what's going on in Revelation, it's God 
perhaps letting mankind experience all dimensionality during that time frame of tribulation. Okay. So then the question has to do with, since, you know, we often talk about the fact that um, God is far more, operates in far more dimensions than we do. We operate in three and a half dimensions, you know, uh, length, width, height, and time, which is half a dimension. For us, we only go forward, we can't go backward in time. Um, But God is, lives in far more dimensions than that, and most, whether they're um, rabbinical scholars or ancient rabbinical scholars um, tend to look at God in ten dimensions, um, and that's not for us to pin down tonight. All right, but um, so the question is: are, is what we're seeing in the Book of Revelation um, something God is giving it to us, so to speak? I want to see if I'm saying it accurately to your words, Michelle. But in uh, giving us a multi-dimensional view of things, is that what you're saying? Yeah, letting mankind experience dimensionality. And I, I would say it's an interesting observation, but generally speaking, my answer would be, yeah, not so much. Here's what I mean. Um, to me, the multidimensionality of God has to be, by the reader, has to be assumed, right? He's God, we're not. So if we live in three and a half dimensions, he better live in more, or we've got some serious issues, right? So, um, so now... He, he says to John, uh, chapter four, well, chapter one, uh, Jesus says, take a letter. And then actually, while we're here, take seven letters and send them to these churches. Then John said, and then um, after these things, suddenly I heard a voice calling to me saying, come up here. And suddenly I was in the throne room of God, right? And, and that's chapter four, chapter five. He gives us this throne room view and then from there, he starts showing these seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, and, and all these things happening. Is there a multidimensional aspect to it? Oh, yeah. But God's not, his point in writing it is not about dimensions. The whole point of Revelation, let's never forget what it is, is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Who's him? No. Jesus. God gave Jesus, who is God, right? That, that's, a, that's, that's a mind bender right from there. But the revelation, the apocalyptus, the revelation, the opening up, um, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants the things which must quickly take place. And he sent and he signified it or signified it by his messenger, his angel, to his servant, John. That's the whole purpose of the book of Revelation is that God gave this to John, to Jesus, to give to John, to give to the church, right? So everything that's in here is not about us being interested in dimensionality or any of those things, even though it can be interesting to you or to me. That's not the purpose of the book. The purpose is it's about to take place. Get ready. That's the purpose of the book, okay? So, uh, other questions? Karen. Chapter 14, she says. So turn in your Bibles to chapter 14. 
Jamie, can you take a seat in the back there? <laughs> Chapter 14, what was the verse? Okay. They sing the song that no one knows. Okay. So my question is You want to know what the song is? No. Okay, good. Because no one knows, Cameron. <laughs> for for the for live stream, um, you can't hear what's going on, and some of you guys over here probably can't hear what's going on. So this is about chapter fourteen, uh, the Lamb. Uh, on Mount Zion with the hundred and forty four thousand. Um, they sing a song that no one knows. Hit it. Yes. So do they become then martyrs that are appearing with Jesus in heaven singing this song or are they still on earth? Okay. So that's the question. So the question sounds like it is um, it says they're on Mount Zion. Is it the earthly Mount Zion or is it heavenly? Right? That's a, is that. Like, that Right. Since they will be martyred, are they here martyred and in some spiritual sense, or are they physically so? Um, well, let's read it. So then I looked and behold, this is verse one, that I looked and behold the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, the elders. And, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. They are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So um, the, the inclination is to want to look at that as if they're on earth. But there's a lot of language in there that suggests that it's a heavenly scene. So, um, and you have this movement throughout the book of Revelation that's sort of a, a zoom into planet Earth and then a zoom over to heaven. But I would see this as heavenly Mount Zion. Yeah. It, it would seem that way. Yes. I'm sorry. Where does who come from? Okay, so related question. Karen knows how to take advantage of uh, the floor when you have it. You could, you could be in the White House press corps if you wanted to do this, okay? Um, no, it's a good question. It's a good question. The question is, so, so where did the 144,000 come from in the first place, right? Which, and the first time we see them is over in chapter 7. So look in chapter 7, if you would. Um, and I'm not going to read through it. I mean, you've read through it before. It's pretty straightforward. I'm not saying the answer to her question is necessarily straightforward. It's straightforward who they are, except that all the people who don't see it as straightforward. They are um, 144,000, verse 4, 
who are of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And we see a listing uh, in verses 5 through 8 of the 12 different tribes from which the 144,000 come, 12,000 from each of 12 tribes. They're not, uh, you, know, you know, we always talk about Jehovah's Witnesses, but there's a lot of church movements who have, and I don't consider the Jehovah's Witnesses church, but that's a cult. But, they, but many, even church movements, who don't see the Jewish nature, the Jewish flavor of what's being written here. You can't be from one of the tribes of Israel if you're not Hebrew, okay? So that's a, that ought to be pretty straightforward. And so I'm saying that as a shot against, you know, the cults and those who want to say that. So, so then to Karen's question, to any of us who asked the question, is where'd they come from? In Israel today or anywhere around the world, with rare exception, no Jewish person knows what tribe they're from. Now, if, if you know someone who has the last name Levi, uh, okay, they probably come from a Levitical heritage, okay, or Kohen. Kohen in Hebrew means priest. So, uh, so if their last name is Kohen, they probably came from, from a Kohenic or a, or a priestly um, background. But the fact of the matter is, up until 70 AD, everybody in Israel knew, or they didn't necessarily know their neighbors, but they, they probably did. They, they knew what tribe everybody was from because there were birth records going back thousands of years that were all in the temple. And on, and on the 9th of Av in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, burned, and, and all Jerusalem with it, all those records were destroyed. Oh, okay. You guys are so sentimental. That's really nice. But, but the point is, but think about that from a, from a logical standpoint. A logical standpoint. If you have a Jewish friend and they say, well, we're waiting for the Messiah. Well, here's the first question you want to ask. How will you know when he comes? Because he has to be a descendant of David. He has to be from the tribe of Judah. He can't be from any other tribe. So how will you know, since no one knows if they come from a Davidic background, or, you know, from the tribe of Judah? No one has any way of knowing that nowadays. So how would they know? They can't because all the records, all the lineage, the, you know, the, 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 the uh, chronological or the chronology records were destroyed. Um, but God does know. And so God's the one who sealed 12,000 from each of these 12 tribes. In other words, those people don't know if they come from the tribe of Simeon or, or, or any of these. They don't know that. They just know they're Jewish. And, they, and I would presume, based upon, we, we read in chapter 14, that these 144,000 are virgins. They've never, so they're men, we read, who have never been with a woman. Um, and, and they're Jewish, and, and they're from these tribes. They don't know, at this point today, if, if God were to seal them sometime this year. These people don't know if they're from Gad or Asher or Simeon or, or any of those. They only know they're Jewish and that they love Messiah or they're looking forward to Messiah. That's all they know. And then God's going to seal them and he's going to reveal those things to them. So they don't know, and certainly nobody else knows. You know? So... I'll, I'll do repeats in a bit, but okay, yeah. Chapter 22, verse 2. Give everybody your name, man. 
Wait, chapter 22, verse 2? In the middle of the street. You thought it said what? It's referencing a time frame in heaven. Uh huh. So, what's the question? So, what's the question? Is that if one day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years is like one day, is there any kind of, it seems to me like there is some kind of reference to a time measure or something in heaven? Okay, so we have two questions actually entangled in, excuse me? One of the oranges coming next. What? Okay, one at a time. Okay, yeah. Um, we'll wait for your question until then, just kind of. Uh, <laughs> if you would, because I can't hear what's going on. Um, so two questions that are entangled, but there's actually a third question with it. So the first question has to do with, there seems to be a time frame here, Revelation 22, verse 2, speaking of uh, uh, you know, the New Jerusalem in the middle of the street and on either side of the river that was, that was going to, through the city was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month, month being a time indicator. So uh, then you asked about, okay, so the question of there's a time indicator here, is there time in heaven or in, in eternity? That's one question. Uh, the other question that you brought into that, that if a day is with the Lord is a thousand years and thousand years is as a day, I'm not sure if you had an exact question except that what, is that, what do we do with this? Is that basically what you're asking? Okay, let's, let's deal with the, 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 the day thousand year issue first. Um, Psalm 90 verse something, and you'll figure it out if you look it up, you can tell me. But Psalm 90, Moses says uh, that the day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as the day. Peter picks up that idea in 2 Peter chapter 3, that a day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as the day. In neither case do, do either one of them, Moses or Peter, in neither case do they say one day equals 1,000 years. That, well, I say that because there are many commentators, I mean, guys with lots of letters after their names, um, and many of us, I was, I was one for many years, I would read this stuff and say, well, okay, a day equals 1,000 years, and you have this idea of what's called the day-age theory, that you can calibrate you know, a day to 1,000 years. Well, that's not given to us for that purpose. God didn't give this as a formulaic uh, or, or, or some sort of a, a ruler we can put down and say this is equal to that. He's not saying this is equal to that. What he's saying is to God who lives in multiple dimensions, who oversees all things, who created and sustains all things, to him who created time in the first place, a day is like a thousand years. He didn't say a day is a thousand years. You're not saying that, I know that. Uh, he didn't say a day is a thousand years. He's just saying time to us goes by like this. Time to God is there. So God is the one who is, who was, and who is to come all at once, right? And so, so that, then you get into this very interesting idea, and I'll circle back, and I know you didn't ask this, but I'll, I, I want to throw it out. Um, to this question of, so what do we do 
with these time markers when we're dealing with eternity. Because for in eternity, why is there time? And, and for some of you, may, that may not seem like a conundrum. But it can be a conundrum in other ways. Time, let's, um, I'll try to do this quickly. So time is a physical property, right? Um, and I think we've been through this discussion before of, you know, uh, uh, you know, Einstein and his theory of relativity, which is a, a great approach to this. And some of you are going to zone out. Don't do that. Um, because Einstein said, well, at, as, as a body in motion is moving at a very high rate of speed or a very large, you know, a substantial fraction of the speed of light, um, relative to the body or its, or its companion on Earth, where, it's, where things are standing still. Um, space is what's called dilating, and time is contracting. So that, you know, many of us have heard the old example before of the twin astronauts, they're each 30 years old, one stays on Earth, the other gets into a spaceship, travels at some high fraction of the speed of light for five years, and comes back to planet Earth. His brother is 35 years old now, but he's only a couple months older. And, that's, and, and we say, that's fantastical, but it's actually been proven out to like the fifth or sixth decimal place um, that that's actually what happens. Okay, so what does that tell us? For those of you who were zoning out, come back in. What that tells us is that time actually is a physical property. Were there not mass, you know, if, 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 if we weren't living in this physical universe, we wouldn't have time in the first place, right? God's outside of time. He's not, he's not limited by a calendar or a clock or any of those things. So, now some of you may think, well, yeah, okay, I, I buy that. So do I. But then you get to the question, for example, this, this thing here in verse 2. Months. Wait a minute. Where'd months come from? If we're in eternity now, where'd months come from? Because I, many people believe once we get into eternity... Time is no more, right? Um, and, and you get into the question of, is, it, is time no more, or are we dealing with a matter of, and I'll just leave it there dangling and we'll go on to something else, or are we dealing with eternal time? A whole other, a whole other idea. So the, uh, the, a day is what the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. If you say, well, that's how God looks at it, what do I do with that? Here's one example. Um, I'm, a, I'm a young earther, I think many of you are, um, meaning that when we look at the scripture and we look at um, science and, and the, the earth record, etc., um, I'm, I'm convinced that the whole physical creation's only been around for 6,000 years, or just about. Um, and, uh, and it's interesting when you start to look at the whole biblical, uh, the whole biblical record and the biblical, I'll call it, forecast of what's going to occur, it appears that God has moved in uh, what I'll call a sabbatical form, meaning uh, you know, uh, in, in, uh, in multiples of seven. Okay, And so we know that God has this way of dealing with the Sabbath in a week, like you know, six days you'll work, the seventh you rest. We see that if you go through the law, um, 
he does that with Israel. Um, he says that uh, six years you'll plow the land, and the seventh you let it lay fallow. Um, we see the, 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 the holidays in you know, the feasts of Israel. They, they happen really in a, in a monthly program, and, and they operate over seven, it's 12, it's 12 months altogether, but it's a seven-month program. Um, and, and you can see, so you can see it in, in weeks, there's, there's Sabbaths for weeks, or Sabbaths for days, Sabbaths for weeks, Sabbaths of months, and Sabbaths of years, right? Six years you, you work, um, or, or if you were a slave, right, you would, you would serve for six years, and the seventh you'd be set free. In the multiple, the seven, the, the seven times multiple of the seven years be 49 years, right? The 50th year is called what? Jubilee, all of the debts are forgiven. So there's this, God has this structure. Where are you going with all of that, John? Well, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, then, that when you look at the, the overall, uh, if you want to call it calendar, for, the, for creation as a whole, it seems to be 6,000 years of creation coming to a close at the end of the age we're in now. Christ returns for his church the, the, he pours out his wrath on all those who hate him. And then, you know, after Armageddon, what does he do? What, did we, what comes next? Huh? Millennial kingdom. 1,000-year kingdom after the other 6,000 years. So it's that seventh. This, that seventh is a 1,000-year kingdom, right? Sabbatical structure. Um, so you can kind of see it there. And I would just throw out, this is a bonus round. Um, God says to Adam, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Right? Did he say that? Yes. Okay. Did he die? I know what you're going to say. But did Adam die when he ate? Yes, spiritually. We all say, yes, he died spiritually. And you're right. But we also all know what death is. Right? So when did Adam actually die? Physically. When did he die? 930 years old. He was in his, when? He was, it was in the thousand years when he died. So, I mean, I've said there's, there's those aspects that you can see, but you can only see that when you see the year to a thousand, or day to a thousand year thing, not as a formula, but a general view of how God sees things. Sorry, I took up too much time on that, but yes. Well, I, my, the question is, uh, I'm, I'm under, I'm being, I'm being cross-examined, and um, is there a ding-dong going on in here? Is there, oh, no, that's okay. I, did, I thought it was me. Um, so um, uh, the, the question has to do with how old did I say I think the earth is? And, don't be sorry. No, 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 don't be sorry. <laughs> don't be sorry. <laughs> the question is, how old is the earth? And my view, my opinion, uh, and I'm not alone. I think a lot of people, they're, they're, uh, a lot of Christians tend to, to, to fall into one of two categories, young earth or old earth, okay? And so I see the earth as young, uh, relatively speaking, about 6,000 years, like 5,800 and some years as the Jews would count it. Well, we can talk about that. That depends on how you count a year, but yeah. 
I'm not sure what you're asking. I'm not either because I'm kind of freaked out right now. Hold up. Because, um, I need a minute. Because I know that, you know, Revel, like, this is coming, but I know that people have been saying that for like hundreds of years. Sure. I'm trying to right. gauge it, like, am I going to, I don't know, be walking with a cane by the time it comes, or if it's going to be like next year? So, the, no, great question. Great. No, no. Stop saying you're sorry. Don't be sorry. It's a great question. The question has to do with, well, how old is all of this? And really, if, if we're really that close to 6,000 years, how close are we? Because does that give us an idea how much time we got left? Right? That's your question. Well, I know we don't ever know when he's really coming back. That's true. Right. So, uh, did you understand the question as I said it? Because I don't, okay, rather than repeat it again. All right, so, um, look, uh, someone can look it up, but the, uh, but uh, Jewish theologians, uh, Orthodox, tend to see, I, and I don't have the number in my head, I'm, I'm putting it in the 5,800, 5,850 uh, or so years, uh, is the age of the earth. Um, others see it differently. Archbishop Usher calculated the age of the earth hmm, back in, was that the 1700s when Usher lived? And he calculated that, uh, actually he calculated that the earth was created on April 1st, which might be why we get April Fool's Day. <laughs> really. And those are the non-believers who brought that one up. So um, that's National Atheist Day. So um, he said April 1st of 4004 BC. Okay. Um, so there's, just because Orthodox Jews say it's this many years doesn't mean they're accurate. Just because I say it's roughly 6,000 years doesn't mean I'm accurate. We're all using approximations, right? How far is my house from here? Eh, you know, it's about nine miles. Is it 8.7? Is it 9.8? You know, right? It's about nine miles. It, the Earth's about 6,000 years old. Uh, if we use Archbishop Usher's calculation of 4004 BC, then we're over 6,000 years at this point. We're, we're 6,020, what does that make it? Six years. Um, and it gets further complicated. Some of you might recall that the, that a, a Hebrew year is 360 days. But that changed in 701 BC. Hezekiah, the, the King Hezekiah, changed the calendar. But so did 20 other ancient calendars change in the same year because there was an astronomical event. Right? Think of what a, what a year is. How long does it take the Earth to go around the sun, right? And so something changed things so that all these ancient calendars that used to be 360 days now became something different. For us in the West, we operate on what has now become 365 and a quarter with a couple other corrections that come along the way. Um, so, so if you use 360 days to calculate a year and someone says it's this many years, then you have to know whether are you dealing with 360-day years or 365 and a quarter day years. Bottom line is we don't know the day or the hour. Mark 13, 32, Jesus said no man knows 
the day or the hour. Not the angels in heaven, and he said, not even the Son of Man himself, right? Um, but he also said that we're to know the seasons, right? And that's why Jesus gave us seasons uh, to look at. He said, you can look at the sky and tell it's going to rain tomorrow or whether it's going to be sunny. That if we can tell the weather, we ought to be able to tell the season that we're in. That's what Jesus wanted his followers to know. And that being the case, I would say based upon the seasons and based upon the things that we see happening in Scripture, these are things, the things that we see happening in the world and what the Scripture says will be happening just before his return have never happened in the history of mankind. So if we speak in seasons, we are very close to his return. So will you be walking with a cane? Meaning, will you, will you get to the ripe old age of, because I'm about ready to walk with a cane. Um, you know, are you going to get to 70 years old? And, and the rest of us who we're looking forward to a soon return are going to be in our graves. Uh, or is it going to happen tonight or tomorrow? No one knows. No one knows. We're not called to know. We're called to live in expectancy that he could come tonight. Questions? Dave. I see you, Phil. My question is in uh, chapter 21, where it's talking about the New Jerusalem. And the angel says that I will show you the bride. Verse? Right. So, what does that reference mean? Because I had always been taught that therefore it's the it's the home of the church, and I know that what you taught has been different than that. What have I taught? Well, that that the New Jerusalem is home to all believers. Okay. But the Who loved the Lamb? Okay. Okay, so boiling it down, um, Dave's asking about Revelation 21, verses 9, 10. He says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come and I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Um, so the question is, you know, we, we're, we've all been taught, right, that the, that the church is the bride of Christ. Uh, so and I'm, I'm kind of changing it slightly from what Dave has asked, but how can you call a city the bride? And that's, the, that's really the first question that everybody gets stumbled on. How can you call the city the bride? Okay, the city is the, is the habitation of the church, as we say it, right, as a, as a church. And therefore, okay, we can somehow see that, therefore, as the city, which is um, uh, whatever the word is I'm looking for. But anyhow, it's, it's our habitation as, as, as the church, the bride of Christ. So is Israel also called 
um, the wife of Jehovah. I find that interesting. That's one of the things that I see when I look at this. Um, that Israel is called the wife of Jehovah. And actually, who inhabits, whether we're talking the millennial kingdom, I mean, as opposed from, from those who come in from the tribulation without new bodies, okay? But as far as um, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, what do all saints therefore have in common? They all love the Messiah, right? Um, and so I, I look at that, and, and there's part of that, as I've looked at it over the years, and as I've tried to, to see, well, what do other teachers say about this? Because I don't want to get uh, too, um, too elastic, you know, with my definitions of these things. Um, and, and I find most commentators tend to just look at it as an interesting use of the word to call the city the bride because it's the habitation of those who are married to Jehovah, who love the lamb, whether they're out of Israel or whether they're Gentile, they're, they're lovers of Jehovah and, and ultimately the lamb. Um, that's generally how I see that. I can't really go much further than that. So, Phil. Mm -hmm. You think they're going to keep, you know, like each nation is going to be kept in categories up there, or, or and what kind of healing do you think that, that, that could be to the healing of our sorrows and our, and our, mm -hmm. it's not, because there's not going to be no more curse up there, it tells you in verse 3. That's right, yeah. So it's, it's just like it talks about, about the healing, because that's not for uh, with the, with the times that are fruit, I thought that maybe, because we're all going to have different bodies, part we talked about earlier about the, uh, the tree of life on either side of the river bearing 12 fruits, uh, you know, different fruit each month. But then the next part, um, and the leaves of the tree, the tree of life, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Um, part, of, part of Phil's question was, so uh, is, is there a distinction, national? distinctions um, in heaven. That's one part. And, and let's start there for a minute real quick. When we speak nations, um, we, have a different we have a different use of the term nation in our vocabulary than the biblical one, okay? So we have, uh, I forget what the number is, it keeps going up and down, but we, right now I think there's like 217 nations national, you know, boundaries, et cetera, on planet Earth. Um, and uh, Genesis chapter 10 is the table of nations. There are 70 nations mentioned there. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 24 
that this gospel must first be preached to all nations and then the end will come. We talked about this some time ago, uh, as I recall, that this idea that um, uh, the, the word underneath the English word nations in Matthew 24 is not like what, what we think in terms of boundaries, national boundaries, but rather the word is ethnos. You know, what do you hear in that? Ethnic, okay, ethnic groups. So and that, that kind of points back to Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, right? There are only so many, we'll call them ethnic groups, um, that God sees. And see, some people will say, well, if there's 240, 214 nations and the gospel hasn't gone to some of them yet, then Jesus can't return yet. And yet he says, I can come anytime. So who's right? Well, so how do you get around that? You don't just, you don't just as easy as it is for us to default and say, well, Jesus is always right. So we go with what he says, which is always good business. But, you know, uh, at the same time, you can do it logically in that the word is ethnos. And those 70 ethnos have already been reached. And they may not be in certain physical boundaries that we recognize as having been reached, but the ethnos have already been reached. So yes, they, there is a retention in heaven, uh, in the millennial kingdom, as well as in heaven from everything we gather in scripture of, of ethnicity, we'll call it. Whether it's colors, you know, the colors of skin, um, languages, you know, we think everybody's gonna speak English just because we're Americans, that's it, you know, but um, I don't think so. Um, now the question, really the big question is, what does he mean by for the healing of the nations? You know, and we our, our inclination is to say, well, it's all good there. So there is no healing to do. So that seems like a non sequitur. It doesn't make sense that it would be there. What we read earlier in chapter 21, he says, uh, verse 4, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he was sat on the throne and said, I'm making all things new. There's not a time, there's not a time measurement on that. So the how God does that, that I don't know. To me, if the, if the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, if we were to put uh, a you know, some sort of a time ruler on all this, my inclination is to say, well, once we're there for a thousand years, if that were such a thing, uh, we'd be a whole lot better off than we were in month one. Um, because people are coming in. There are memories. You know, does God just do a sudden wipe of all of our hard drives the moment we come in? I mean, I want to think that. You want to think that, actually, because you don't want to think that you're going to enter into eternity thinking about your loved ones who rejected Jesus Christ. So, so there, there's that confusion that we have in that. But I, all I know is it says, it doesn't give us an answer to the question. Right. It just says the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And I suspect that's, how, that's one way that it factors in. Thank you. Thank you. Hold on. Joe? So my question is, I, yeah, I see you. I wanted you to uh, help clarify the seven churches when God's writing for the seven churches in chapter 1. Uh, verse 19. And what I'm asking for is, what, what I'm kind of curious about is, are they the churches that were in existence at the time that John was writing the letters, or are they churches to come in the future? Okay. I, I'm just a little confused. No, that's great. Um, so the question for anybody who didn't hear it is that um, what are these churches 
that are referenced um, at the end of chapter one, and then, and then the seven letters that go to those churches in chapters two and three. Uh, are these churches that were in existence at that time, or were they somehow pointing to churches that would come? Is that your question? Yeah. yeah. And the answer is that these were churches that were in existence. They were physical operating churches. I mean, you know of one right off the top, the church in Ephesus, right? We read about it in the book of Acts. We just read, we went through a study in the, the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Um, but these, all these churches existed in Western, what we would call Western Turkey, but they called it Asia Minor back there. Um, and, and actually the, the order that they're in, uh, Philadelphia, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, you know, all that. That was the postal route in those days. That's where the mailman would go, so to speak. Um, so they were all in existence. And, and, and actually, as much as we all love to talk about the book of Revelation, the only part of the book of Revelation that's really relevant to us are chapters one through three. Because they all relate, it, it relates specifically to churches. And, and, and everything we read there uh, is... It can be encouraging, it can be admonitory. It, you know, for us as individuals, as churches, we can all learn a lot from what is said to these churches here. So does that help? It does, because in chapter 19, it'll say... Uh, Ch chapter 19? I'm sorry, verse 19, cha chapter 1, verse 19. Yes. It'll say, things you have seen, things which you will see, and, uh, and things that will take place. So there's three different right. references. Exactly. And that's the table of contents of the book of Revelation right there. The book of Revelation, he says in verse 19, Jesus tells John, write the things you have seen. That's everything in chapter 1. That's everything John has already experienced seeing Christ in his glorified body. Write the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3. That's everything that's happening right then in real time for him. And the things which will happen after this. That's after the church is taken out of planet Earth. So uh, I'll come back to you, Jean. The question is whether Mystery Babylon, which we see specifically in chapters 17 and 18, uh, where the woman rides the beast and all of that, is that the Roman Catholic Church? Or is that the, what was your, global the global economic system and all of that? And uh, here's what it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us this is the Roman Catholic Church. Now, that's, that's kind of a, I'm being flip, you know, but because the Roman Catholic Church didn't exist then. But, um, but, 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 but. Okay, hold on, hold on. You're asking me a question. Is this the Roman Catholic Church or is this the world economic system? Well, certainly the world economic system because it shows in it, it, the, the, the woman and the beast together. The woman is a picture of a false, false Christ um, system riding, that means to control, a, an economic and political system, right? That's what we see there. And it's been, it's been traditional, especially for the last couple hundred years, for um, 
for Christian commentators to see this as the Roman Catholic Church controlling the economic system of the earth. And there are a lot of reasons why that could be the case. Um, and uh, you know, we, I, when we went through that study uh, on, seven, on chapter 17 and 18, I said one of your best references is Dave Hunt's book, A Woman Rides the Beast. And, uh, and he's very clear in his, in, in his belief that that is a picture of the Roman Catholic Church. We do not know that. I'm not saying that to be PC. I'm just saying, let's be careful about our immediate assumptions. Just because something feels like it's right doesn't mean that it is. Years ago, when I was saved, you know, everybody said, the European common market, there's going to be 12 nations. And there were 12 nations. When, when there were 11. And then when the 12th one came, you know, it was like that was the late 70s. And it was like, the rapture's coming next week. You know, because now the 12th one joined. Well, now we're looking at the European Union, and we were up to 20-some nations. And so suddenly the way we used to look at things doesn't quite work with the way we used to see things. So uh, I think it's important for us to hold the reality we watch in real time, you know, in tension with what the Scripture says, always holding the Scripture above that. Um, but it is, there are many, many reasons to see that, chapter 17 and 18. There are many reasons to see that as pointing toward uh, a false Christ system. Um, and much of what we see described there looks so much like the Roman Catholic Church. It's hard to avoid. But we can't just conclude, yes, that it is. Jeannie, you have a question. It, okay, Ezekiel chapter what? Ezekiel chapter 48, the last paragraph about the 12 gates. They had Dan, who was Rachel's concubine, steal his son. Hold on a minute. Hold, hold, hold. Easy, easy, easy. Okay, wait a minute. Chapter 48 of Ezekiel, verse? Well, it's just that paragraph about the gates of the city. A paragraph. Don't you have verse numbers in your Bible? Okay. So I drew like a picture of the gates and wrote it out. And Dan is is one on the east side with Joseph and Benjamin. But I'm noticing in, in Revelation chapter seven, Dan is taken out. And the, okay, so it's not really an Ezekiel question. Uh, well, I'm just you're asking why Dan is not a part of chapter seven. Right. We're talking about tribal names, not, not kingly names. We're talking about tribal names. So, so ultimately what you're asking is where's Dan in, in, in the listing in chapter 7 of the 144,000? Is, really, is that what you're asking? Yeah, like X'd out. Okay. We don't know if he's X'd out. God still loves Israel. 
Here's the deal. Of, I, 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 I knew when I taught it right now, I can't recall, um, how many lists of the 12 tribes there are in the whole Bible, you know, from Old into New Testament. Um, in each, I want to say each one, but I'll say just to hedge my bets, in almost each one, it's two things. It's a different order of names and one tribe is often missing, even though you have 12. And I know that gets complicated, but let me just say, you have, you have the 12 tribes. Joseph is a tribal head. But remember, Joseph, taken off in slavery to Egypt, he has two sons, whom he calls Manasseh and Ephraim. Um, and, and they receive a double blessing. So they actually become tribal heads so now if you take Manasseh and Ephraim and Joseph, as well as all the other uh, names, you'd have 13 names. But every time you see the listing of all the tribes of Israel, there's always 12 names. So that means that sometimes, and, and usually the game is played with, with Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim. So sometimes Joseph is seen and Manasseh and Ephraim are not mentioned. Sometimes Joseph and Ephraim or Joseph and Manasseh, or Manasseh and Ephraim and not Joseph. Um, and in this case, in, in uh, Revelation 7, Dan is the tribe that's missing. Now, everybody speculates as to why. We know that uh, uh, idolatry came through the northern, came with, you know, through the tribe of Dan. They were some bad actors. Um, it doesn't mean that God has X'd them out and they have no, no inheritance anymore. But... Um, it's just, it's, it's one of those mysteries that you just can kind of only come back, stand back and observe, as opposed to actually come to a conclusion what happened to those people, you know? That's kind of the way I look at it. I've read things that have indicated that they've started rebuilding the third temple. Is that true? And is that literal? That the third temple will be rebuilt? And is it on the same site where the Dome of the Rock? So the question has to do with uh, the third temple. Um, Tommy's saying that, you know, he's heard that they've begun building the third temple. Uh, is that true? Is it going to be built on the, the site where the Dome of the Rock presently is, which is the Temple Mount? That's where the second temple stood, um, the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. Um, and uh, the question you didn't ask, but the bonus is, when does that have to happen? Is it, in fact, going to happen? So let's start with the last question first. The last question, which I brought up. So the last, just because I wanted to. But um, the last question first, um, will there be a third temple standing when Christ returns? Yes. How do we know that? Bible says so. Where does it tell us that? Well, it tells us that in Daniel chapter 9, that it's going to be rebuilt, and the, and the, the man of sin is going to come in and, and stand in the holy place and declare himself to be God. When we get into the New Testament, um, Jesus refers to that event, Matthew chapter 24, 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand what's he saying. He's, he's quoting Daniel chapter 9. Now he's referring to Daniel chapter 9 about the abomination of desolation, which is when the Antichrist stands in the holy place. So what's he saying? There has to be a third temple. 
Paul the Apostle, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the man of sin will, will, uh, will go into the holy place declaring himself to, to be God and demanding to be worshipped above God and all that is called and worshipped as God. That's not just above Jesus Christ, but everything of every religion in the world. That he'll stand in the holy place. Where's the holy place? It's in the temple. What temple? Not a temple that exists now, a temple that's going to exist. We also saw it in Revelation chapter 11. There was given me a read. Go out and measure you know, the temple that's standing there. And measure the outer court, measure the inner court. What's he referring to? He's referring to the third temple. So three times in the New Testament, there's the reference to a physical temple. I mean, I, I say physical, I'm emphasizing that because seven times in the New Testament, it says that you or we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not the physical structure. Okay, there's going to be a temple which is going to be defiled because the Antichrist is going to go in and he's going to declare himself to be God. So then the pregnant question, yours, is, well then, are they building it? No. It's, oh, but they're, they're ready to. So the, the Temple Mount is a 34 or 5 acre site. It's huge. And the Dome of the Rock sits on it. It looks big. But if you were to compare it to what the second temple looked like, it's dinky compared to what the, you know, what, what the temple looked like. Um, and and uh, the Temple Institute in, uh, in Jerusalem has been working on this for, gosh, I'd say well over 30 years. Um, today, all of the physical implements that are required. The, 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 uh, the Temple Institute makes it their mission to reconstruct every single tool that is required for, for temple worship. We think of temple worship, we think of worship, we think of, oh, we all come in and sing to the guy. You know, we sing while the guy's playing the guitar up front. That's not worship uh, from a Jewish perspective. The, the old covenant form of worship is the sacrifice of animals, right? Um, and, and, and there's a temple with an outer court, an inner court, the holy place, and the holy of the holies. And, and it's in the holy of the holies where the Ark of the Covenant sits. And the priests offer the sacrifice outside and, and the blood is sprinkled in the case of the Yom Kippur Day of Atonement, sprinkled on the, the mercy seat on the, on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. All those things are a part of that worship. Um, those are the things that the Temple Institute has been constructing. If you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see the menorah. It's standing outside in the middle of Jerusalem. You'll see it, a solid gold menorah. It stands about that tall, about that wide. And it's a sight to behold. Um, and they say they have everything else constructed. They have blueprints. They have everything they need. They're ready to go. And um, so they're not constructing it, but they're ready for the, they're ready for the, for the word. So, and of course, then the big question is, yeah, but where? Because there's, there's, there's about a billion and a half Muslims who would have a real problem with the, with the common idea that it stands where it should stand where the Dome of the Rock stands. So, questions? And I'm sorry. Can you help me, Dave? Yes. Yes, there's been, a, there, with regard to a red heifer, um, there's, there's always an, another story that comes through. Um, 
and by the way, a red heifer is needed for, uh, for this form of worship. I mean, it's a weird concept for us. Why the red heifer? Well, first of all, it has to be solid, le- solid red. There can't be one white hair at all, right? So when, when there have been rumors that a red heifer has been born, all the rabbis go out to a certain place, they examine it. It's always kind of a funny idea in my mind to, to see the, all these rabbis with their capas, you know, with their magnifying glass looking at the side of this cow um, just to see if it, and in fact, is 100% red hair. And uh, you always hear that uh, false alarm. But there are others who say they already have it. Incidentally, what's it for? The purpose of the red heifer is to be burned, right? It has to be sacrificed, burned, and then the ashes of the red heifer are what matters. And those ashes are kept in a certain place so that the water, for example, the water that's used for cleansing or when, they, when, when, um, when the altar is inaugurated and the fire on the altar, ashes of the red heifer have to be sprinkled there. The idea that you would put, um, you guys are right? The idea that you would put ashes into water to make it cleaner. Doesn't make sense to us. But it's, a, it's the idea of Levitically clean. It's, it's spiritually clean, okay? Um, and, so, uh, and so there are those who say, number one, not a problem, we already have the red heifer. And there are still others who, even if the first one wasn't correct, they say, we still have ashes from the red heifer left over from 2,000 years ago. So that's all I know, that you know. So some people say it is, some people say they don't know, but that's where you go with that. We have time for maybe two. All the way over there first. A little louder. Oh, great question. That's a really good question. Um, the, so, and I'll tell you what it was. Um, the question was, since there, there are all these things that still have to happen, like the temple has to be built, right? And it does before all these things we see in the book of Revelation. Um, Damascus, Isaiah 17, Jeremiah 49, that Damascus is going to be destroyed in one day. These things have to happen. Considering the fact that these things have to happen, how can we, how can, how can I be so confident that the rapture can occur at any time? And the answer to that is that the rapture precedes all of the, first of all, the events that happen during the tribulation period or, or the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel is a very specific time period. We call it seven years. It's exactly 2,520 days. Bible tells us over and over and over again, 2,520 days. Or it's three and a half years here, three and a half years there, added up to a total of seven years. Or it's 42 months here and it's 42 months there, adding up to 84 months. Or uh, it's 2,520 days made up of 1,260 and 1,260. Over and over, I'm saying that to, to... be exhaustive. Um, Over and over, the Bible tells us exactly how long this period of time is. But this period of time comes out of the book of Daniel, where the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that this period of time is allotted for your people and your holy city. Who was Daniel's people? Israel. What is his holy city? Jerusalem. 
Not speaking about the church. Not speaking about Gentiles. It's about them. So these events in here, even though they affect all the, all, everybody living on planet Earth at that time, specifically about Israel. But the rapture is about the church. The church was born on one day. I mean, you could make the case that the, the church could never have existed unless Israel had first rejected her Messiah. Jesus came as the Messiah for the Jews, the Messiah of Israel. They officially rejected her, and the birthday of the church happened to be on a Jewish feast day, on the day of Pentecost, right, or Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. So um, that's the birthday of the church. The church has a birthday, and it's going to have a taking out day, the rapture. That's what the Bible teaches. But there is no precondition for the snatching away of the church. These other things will happen during this tribulation period. Or, or Damascus, for example, is not necessarily linked to the tribulation period. It's just something that's going to happen. And the Bible doesn't tell us whether the destruction of Damascus occurs before the church is out of here or after. The Bible doesn't tell us if uh, the Magog invasion, Ezekiel 38 and 39, whether that's before or after the rapture. I mean, I have a, an opinion on it, but the Bible doesn't say that the church must be raptured first. So, do you see what I'm saying? So um, there's no precondition for the rapture, and that's why Jesus said, be ready. You know, so last question. Wait, hold on, I gotta find it. Chapter 20, verse 5. Can you explain to me again who the rest of the dead are? Can I explain to you who the rest of the dead are? All right. Um, so, the, uh, it's 8.33, and um, that's why I said it's the last question. Let's start at Verse one, okay. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And the angel cast him into the abyss, the bottomless pit, and he shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished." This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over these people, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay, so there's this thousand-year period. That's why I keep emphasizing it. There's this thousand-year period, which is critical for us to understand there, and it's, we call it the millennial kingdom, right? When Jesus is going to rule from a throne in Jerusalem. And, and all those who are going to be there, there's a resurrection, the first resurrection. Jesus is called the first fruits of those who slept. He's the first one 
of the first resurrection. The rest of us who have placed our faith in him also will rise again at different times, right? And so he's speaking of who are the people who are going to inhabit this kingdom, this thousand-year kingdom. And all those he's speaking of are, in total, we're talking about the Old Testament saints, right? They're going to be raised from the dead. And there's a reference to them back in Matthew 27, around, I think, verse 57 or so, um, when, when Jesus, uh, after he was crucified, he gave up the ghosts. There was a great earthquake. The rocks were, were open, and, the, and the, uh, the tombs were opened after the resurrection, right? Jesus rose, and so did the bodies of many who many Old Testament saints. Okay, so there's going to be Old Testament saints in here. There are going to be those like us, right? There are going to be those for the last 2,000 years who placed their faith in Jesus Christ and died. They're going to be raised, and they're going to inhabit that kingdom, new bodies. Um, there are going to be those of us, perhaps in this room, who are going to be raptured, not die, but we're going to be raptured. We're going to be raptured, given new bodies, and we're going to go from heaven you know, into this kingdom at some point. So you have Old Testament saints, you have, you have the church, we'll call them, you know, who, were, who had died, the dead in Christ, are going to rise, be given new bodies. They're going into that kingdom. We, who, who will meet them in the air if we're going to be raptured, we're going to go into that kingdom. And then he says those also who survived the tribulation, well, those who died in the tribulation, they were beheaded because of their testimony for Christ, they're going to be raised and they're going to go into that kingdom. Even those who, who were able to survive the tribulation uh, and weren't beheaded, they didn't take the mark of the beast, they go in. They don't go in with new bodies like everybody else did. They're going to go with these kind of bodies, right? Those are all the types of people going into that new kingdom. But those, and that's your, your question, the rest of the dead, who are the rest of the dead? They don't place their faith in Jesus Christ. They're going to stay in their tombs for the next thousand years. And then when we come to um, uh, the great white throne judgment, they're going to be raised, and they're going to be judged according to their sins, and they will be, uh, their name will not found in the book of life, and they will go into the lake of fire based upon their sins. Does that help? Yeah. So, pretty, it's a pretty awesome kind of a concept, isn't it? You know? So, and he's a great God of equity because at the same time, those of us who know Jesus Christ, those whose name are not written in the book of life are going in not because of their sins. They're going into the lake of fire not because of their sins, but because they rejected the payment for their sins. But they're going to be treated or punished according to their sins in this life. It's the flip side of the same coin for us. We're going into heaven, not because we're sinless, not because we earn heaven, but because salvation is a gift. But we're going to be rewarded according to how we lived for Christ here in this life. It's like, it's, it, it's the flip side of the coin or it's a mirror opposite, however you want to look at it, but he's the same God of equity. So... Listen, please be reading ahead. Next week, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1. So I hope to see you guys back. Maybe you'll be back here on Sunday, too. That'd be good, too. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the time we have in you, Lord. Um, while we're here, Lord, may we be found faithful doing the work that you've called us to. And while there's a lot that we don't understand about your soon return. We know 
that you're a returning. And we know that your return for the church could be any moment, Lord. And may we help us, Lord, to go from just talking about it to believing it in fact so that our lives would reflect that expectancy. Use us, Lord, the way you desire. We lift up to you, Lord, our, our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, all these family members, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you would move in their lives and you would bring them to that point of crisis where they would trust Jesus as their Savior, Lord. We thank you for your love for us. What marvelous grace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bless you all.